The Daily Rios Digest, Volume 3, Saturday, November 25th, 2023. I can see clearly now the rain is gone. I can see all obstacles in my way. Gone are the dark clouds that had me blind. Hey everyone, this is your host Peter with the 21st Digest of this third volume covering Monday, November 20th through Friday, November 24th, 2023. Monday Musings. Today is Monday, November 20th, which just happens to be my birthday. In the spirit of this podcast being a personal journal, I tried to find birthday topics, uh, something that might be on the internet for me to use to mark the year, mark the occasion, take some time to pause and reflect on the previous year from, you know, last year's birthday to this year's birthday, and I found a bunch of questions that you're supposed to ask yourself on your birthday, or you could ask yourself, and as I was going through them and answering them, I realized, no, there's no way I could do that. There's just, there just hasn't been enough in this past year for me to celebrate in that way, in that regard. Uh, you know, it's not like I've had, um, it's not like this year has been a total wash or just been, you know, depressing or anything like that. It's just, you know, it's just been a year. In fact, it's kind of been that way, uh, ever since the pandemic or maybe ever since I stopped teaching. Um, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm floating, you know, so, but I still wanted to mark the occasion because, you know, here it is my birthday, the first segment of a new digest. And I already did a short segment on Scorpio season, which began in October. So I thought, what about the day itself? What do I know about November 20th and what could I talk about? I always I always knew that I was born on a Monday. So it's interesting that today is a Monday. Um, I know that I'm Generation X, that my Chinese zodiac is the year of the rat. And then I found out some other information. My number one or the number one song during my birth uh, was Johnny Nash's I Can See Clearly Now, which I played at the beginning of this episode. And that just so happens to open up one of my favorite John Cusack movies, which is Gross Point Blank. So kind of cool to know that. And when I listen to the lyrics, I'm like, oh, you know, that's a that's a song I could groove with, you know, if I if I think about it. And then the number one song that was released in the UK at this time is Chuck Berry's My Ding-a-Ling, which I find hysterical because that's a song that my older brother and older sister used to play. My older brother used to be, he used to play guitar and used to be in a band. And I just remember us singing that song when I was younger. So I'm I just when I found that out, it struck me. 
and made me think, wow, you know, sometimes these memories, these things really do matter. All right, so what else did I learn? November 20th, people born on this day are fighters and tend to find themselves involved in struggles of all kinds. Wow, amen. Often controversial, their ideas and personality invariably become a focus of discussion and scrutiny. Those born on this day may also display a rebellious effect, though they are in fact extremely loyal to their family, company, and social circle. It is generally due to the extreme nature of their views and their forceful manner of expressing them that they arouse antagonism. Rarely will they tone down their rhetoric. Indeed, they would rather fight than switch. That sounds, that just sounds amazing because I can think of, I can think of myself, especially in podcast terms like early CGS days, you know, forcefully expressing my ideas, arousing antagonism in listeners. Yeah, I love that. November 20 people can be bitingly sarcastic, but also extremely funny. They have a knack for probing people's weaknesses and love to make sport of those who are stuck up or pompous. Sometimes it seems they are never more satisfied than when they are bringing someone down off of his, her high horse. Hmm, kind of like that. November 20 people are on the whole highly practical. They may have an, uh, an excitable nature, however, and are quite capable of having fits when they are repeatedly frustrated. Mental training is thus vital to their success, learning to control their emotional, volatile side, and finding the cause of their anger and how to deal with it. Discipline, mental training, yeah, the, you know, that's a key. I find that in myself a lot that, uh, look, you know, um, just knowing that I, I, I'm probably going to get behind on these digests here at the end of this year, you know, just... Uh, it's about discipline, 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 discipline. There is a childlike side to November 20 people that keeps them young, both in looks and spirit. Yep, I totally got a Peter Pan complex. A kind of timeless quality that defies age. November 20 people often make fine role models for younger people who may look up to them as crusaders of a kind because they demonstrate a seriousness towards life that is admirable. It is also possible, however, that those born on this day uh, in zealously pursuing their goals may alienate the feelings of loved ones. Thus, they must be beware of jeopardizing the harmony of their family through an untempered enthusiasm for their work or ideals. That could just mean, you know, for me, I threw myself in theater when I was younger and I never went on like family vacations because I was always so busy. I do tend to put my work and art in front of people sometimes and mostly because I think I've talked about this before especially when I was directing uh, no matter how prepared I was I always felt like I was behind as soon as we started like the first day of rehearsal I was like okay I'm already behind right and um, I get that I get some of what what I just read it would be wise for these individuals to get a handle on their energy and their tongue they need to remember that uh they need to remember that is more difficult to undo than to do. Self-control is key. They need to understand the basis of their behavior. They can learn to laugh at themselves too. These people should try to avoid arguments, antagonisms, and confrontations as much as possible. Well, 
you know, that's because you mix the Scorpio side in and we can be, uh, we can be, we can be cold. We can be very cold people. We can be very dark. Um, so I see that, you know, I used to laugh. One of my favorite criticisms as a podcaster was when people would say, you know, like I would get in arguments with somebody on forums or in private messages, things that, you know, listeners just never knew about, you know, other podcasters that would always try to come at the necks of CGS and and would always have to turn around and apologize to us for one reason or another. But when it got down to that playground level, somebody would inevitably say to me, you know, oh, well, you're just a dick. And I, I used to think, hey, you know what? I'd rather be a dick than a liar, than a weasel, than an ingrate, than a blowhard, than a sore loser, than a deplorable, you know, all the things that those other people were because, you know, I proved them wrong or I called them out or I showed that uh, they were two-faced, you know. So all they could come to me because I had the facts and I had the truth and I had, uh, you know, receipts on my side, they could, all they would just say is, well, you're just dick. You know, you don't want to listen. You're just, and I'm like, great, I'll be a dick. I'm okay with that. You're the one that proved that you're a weasel and you're the one that proved that you lied about this or that you, um, you know, were trying to, that you were a sore loser because our show was better than theirs or, you know, that they were just, uh, you know, causing ruckus on the forum and we kicked them off, you know, just stuff like that. Like, great. I totally know that about myself and I am completely at ease at being a dick if that means I'm able to prove that the other person is is one of those things which is in my mind far worse so there you go a little bit of a little bit of uh, background podcast stuff that uh, sometimes has come up over the many years uh, let's see who else has my birthday I share my birthday with Bo Derek Joel McHale Ming Na Wen Edwin Hubble Joe Walsh, Joe Walsh of the Eagles, Mike Diamond of the Beastie Boys, Future, Chester Gould, Jill Thompson. I didn't know about those two. Sean Young, Jeremy Jordan, and of course, our President of the United States, Mr. Joe Biden. There you go. A little insight into people born on this day, November 20th. Timeline Trivia Tuesday, part two for November 2023, comic history, comic trivia for 40 years ago, 50 years ago, and 60 years ago. We start 40 years ago, November of 1983. I'm loving going back to this era because uh, this is right at the first year of me reading comics and... You know, I'm certainly going through and going, yep, there's my first issue of Batman or there's my first issue of, of uh, you know, some Marvel comic. But also what else was going on at that point that I just missed or didn't realize that was also starting at that time. So 40 years ago, November 1983, Distant Soil, number one, the first incarnation of Colleen Duran's science fantasy epic published at that time by uh, Warp Graphics. Plotter artist Colleen Duran, scripter Richard Peeney, and letterer Robert Pinaha. 
Originally, this series was published in fanzines, and then it landed at Warp, and then after nine issues, uh, Colleen Duran left um, the, the, the company for accusations of the company trying to claim copyright and trademark on her work. And then eventually it would wind up at other places as well. She would discard almost all 300 pages of work and start the series from scratch. And then she went to Starblaze and eventually to Image Comics. It's crazy to think that she was scouted as early as high school for publication for uh, this work. And then we also have Whisper, number one of two, which was created by Stephen Grant, the female ninja Whisper, debuting at Capitol Comics in 1983. And it obviously didn't last long because uh, Capitol Comics collapsed, or at least the publishing side collapsed. And then there was a one-shot published by First Comics, and then eventually it would wind up uh, in an anthology series and eventually into the character's ongoing series in 1986. And I think even years later, I remember buying a Whisper one-shot. I don't know if it was from like Boom or somewhere else. The character was trained in martial arts from a young age to force her body back to life from polio. And then, of course, she gets caught up in action and adventure. Forty years ago, November 1983, gave us Action Comics 552, the first of a two-part Forgotten Heroes story, uh, putting them up against Vandal Savage by Marv Wolfman and Gil Kane. They were teased all the way back in Action Comics 545, and it's a concept, uh, probably one of the like lesser-known concepts at DC, that I just adore. So you have Animal Man, Cave Carson, Congo Bill, Dane Dorrance of the Sea Devils, Dolphin, Rick Flag, and Rip Hunter coming together because of, uh, as I mentioned, Vandal Savage, but also as a way to explain why they had gone more or less underground for many, many years at DC. And this adventure told that tale. Then they would appear in DC Comics Presents, fighting against the forgotten villains. And then a version of this team showed up in the late 90s in Resurrection Man. 40 years ago, in a story called Crossroads, we got the retirement of both Wally West and Dick Grayson as Kid Flash and Robin in New Teen Titans issue number 39. Marv Wolfman, George Perez, Ben Oda, Adrian Roy. This is the start, especially if you pick up some trade paperback collections. They consider this the start of the Judas Contract story, or at least the prelude to the Judas Contract story. Um, it's uh, The issue was penciled and inked by Perez. You know, he felt this was an important issue, so he wanted to give it his best. Uh, the cover is very much like that Spider-Man No More infamous John Romita page. Um, and the first few pages of this story which features this battle with the New Teen Titans against, you know, I don't know. I don't know if it's Hive or just some other people. I, I didn't look it up. Um, 
those pages were scandalously copied for X-Force number one. Rob Liefeld just basically copied those pages, the panel layouts, the, the, the character positions. And when you look at the first few pages of X-Force 1 and look at the first few pages of New Teen Titans 39, you're like, oh, that's where that comes from. This issue also connects with Batman 368, which also released in November 1983, Doug Monk, Dan New uh, Don Newton, and Alfred Alcala, Ben Oda, Adrian Roy again, where Dick Grayson passes the torch to a pre-crisis Jason Todd. And that had the cover that showed Robin and Batman, and it says, uh, Introducing Robin the Boy Wonder. That's right, we said Boy Wonder. And that's kind of on a billboard. And that cover was by Ed Hannigan and Dick Giordano. From 40 years ago, we have Swamp Thing 21, which is the anatomy lesson, Alan Moore's second issue, the one where he puts his name and puts his concepts and ideas uh, right on the story. We talked about Swamp Thing 20 last time around, uh, or I should say last month. This is also Steve Bissett, John Totalbin, John Costanza, uh, Tatiana Wood, and just an amazing story. I was reading that at the time, and, you know, it's November 1983, so I'm 11. I'm 11 when I'm reading The Anatomy Lesson. I have no idea what I'm reading, but I just know it's cool and dark and interesting. Um, and I got some feedback that I'm actually going to throw in here from Mr. Chris Beckett about the digest for October 21st, talking about Saga of the Swamp Thing number 20. And Chris says, Unlike you, Peter, I was introduced to this run with the Warner Books collection of issues 21 through 27, which would have been around 1987 when I was 15. I believe this was also my introduction to a Alan Moore. The anatomy lesson blew me away, and I was a fan of Moore's for life. I devoured that collection, read it multiple times, got the next one, Love and Death, and then worked for years to gather the rest of the issues since they weren't fully collected for decades. Of course, that included issue 20, which, besides the final issue to finish off my collection, issue 42, is the only one I remember distinctly purchasing. My family and I were on a summer trip, summer trip to Prince Edward Island, and when we got a chance to head into the city, I discovered a comic shop in the mall, and they had that elusive first issue from Moore for only 20 bucks Canadian. With the exchange rate, it was practically a few cents, plus the lint from your pants pocket. I readily handed over my money and then read it as soon as I had the opportunity. It's a great memory. One other thing I wanted to share, since you discussed where more would go with the character after that first issue, something that doesn't get mentioned often, en often enough is the fact that many of the ideas more incorporated into the stories going, going forward came from Stephen Bissett and John Tottlebin, they were very active collaborators, and Moore was a very receptive one. Specifically, the underwater vampires in a later issue came from Bissett and or Tottlebin, and Bissett has mentioned in the new introductions to the hardcover collections that maybe that Moore took a lot more of their input and put it into the series. 
Moore is known for his very specific and very long scripts, and people equate that very much with him driving the bus. But he's also someone who has been open to ideas from all of his collaborators. Thank you, Chris. Yes, I actually have um, an interview with, I think it's with Stephen Bissett, or maybe it's with Bissett and Tottleben from an old Hero magazine, Hero Illustrated magazine, uh, that I've been meaning to go through and get some information from. So maybe I'll have to follow up um, your email, your letter. Uh, what, what did he do? Oh, Chris dropped this on the website. That's right. Follow up your comments and follow up this timeline trivia with a uh, magazine Monday. And maybe I'll get that information out there. So we shall see. All right. Yeah, This that's all great. You know, I actually had those issues. I had the entire... Well, did I have all... The, yeah, I think I had up to like somewhere in the 50s of the Alan Moore run. I don't think I necessarily finished with some of the last issues, but I had that entire run, and right before college, I sold uh, probably a box of comics, maybe two box of boxes of comics, to Bogota Comics here in uh, Reading, Pennsylvania, one of the other stores that we sometimes talk about on CGS, and they gave me like $300 credit for the box and i have to imagine it was probably because of um the swamp thing books and i i can't remember what else i gave them i might have given them like i don't know maybe some miracle man or i don't know something i gave them something valuable but 300 bucks you know when you're in college and i was like great i get credit for that and i can still buy books awesome i was down for that all right let's continue 40 years ago nine, uh, november of 1983 we have some anniversary issues World's Finest Comics 300 and Amazing Spider-Man 250. A little-known miniseries featuring Gene Cole and artwork shot straight from his pencils. The first issue of Nathaniel Dusk. And your question for 40 years ago comes from Star Trek number one. Star Trek the franchise at DC Comics uh, at this time. With uh, writer Mike W. Barr, Tom Sutton, Ricardo Villagran, Michelle Wolfman, John Costanza, and Marv Wolfman, editor. This was the Wormhole Connection story, and it featured the series featured stories set after Star Trek II, and then eventually stories set after Star Trek III. So DC had the franchise, the Star Trek franchise. From 1983 to 1996, they did uh, volumes on the original series and volumes on Next Generation. This particular volume that began in November 1983 ran for 56 issues with three annuals. Your question, who was the cover artist on the first three issues? All right, let's go 50 years ago, November of 1973, Mr. Miracle 18. This is the last Jack Kirby issue, and it is the issue that puts the series on a hiatus until 1977, when Steve Englehart and Marshall Rogers take over the book. That final issue has the wedding of uh, Mr. Miracle and Big Barda, and I think... That just leaves Kirby working on Commandy at this point. I think he's all done with the New Gods stuff, and he's just working on Commandy. Maybe Demon, but I think it's just Commandy at this point. 
Uh, let's see, 50 years ago, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, 163, is the final issue. It would uh, stay with the numbering, but it would become Superman Family until issue 222. This title has been running since 1954. Over at Marvel, Luke Cage finally gets a superhero name and a series rebranding. Instead of the hero for hire, he becomes Luke Cage Power Man, by Gil Kane, the cover by Gil Kane and Dan Atkins. And it features guest starring Iron Man. And that's the reason why, you know, Luke Cage throughout the whole issue, he's like, I really need a name to make a name for myself. I'm tired of other people taking the credit. Maybe hero for hire doesn't work. Uh, the cover says the first and still the greatest black superhero of all. Obviously, he's not the first, but he is the first black uh, American superhero to star in his own comic book series. Uh, so, yeah, so we got 50 years of him being Power Man. Your question comes from Action Comics 432 by Carrie Bates, Kurt Swan, featuring a new version of the Toy Man, uh, whose real name is Jack Nimble. And this is the version that would eventually show up on the Challenge of the Super Friends cartoon in 1978, the version that looks a little bit like the Trickster, right? So your question, who voiced Toy Man in the Challenge of the Super Friends cartoon? Aha, threw you a little, little twist there, right? It's not exactly about the comics, but it's sort of about comics. So who was the voice of Toy Man in Challenge of the Super Friends? We wrap this segment up going back 60 years ago to November of 1963, a whole bunch of first appearances from Marvel. Amazing Spider-Man 9, the first appearance of Electro. Tales of Suspense 50, the first appearance of the Mandarin. X-Men 3, the first appearance of the Blob. Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos number 5, the first appearance of Baron Wolfgang von Strucker. Tales to Astonish 52, the first appearance of Black Knight. So your question... All five of those issues were written by Stan Lee, but only two were drawn by Jack Kirby. Which two were drawn by Jack Kirby? Amazing Spider-Man 9, Tales of Suspense 50, X-Men 3, Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos 5, and Tales to Astonish 52. Pencils down. Here are your answers. 40 years ago... Uh, November 1983, who was the penciler on the first three Star Trek covers? That would be Mr. George Perez. That's right, George. Uh, drawing the Star Trek crew and the Enterprise. Um, I have those covers. Once I found out that they were drawn by him, I was like, oh yeah, of course, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go pick those up. I have to imagine Marv Wolfman being the editor probably had something to do with that. 50 years ago, 1973, who voiced Toy Man in the Challenge of the Super Friends cartoon? That would be, of course, the man of many, many characters, Frank Welker, who did Fred Jones in Scooby-Doo, Megatron, Soundwave, Jabberjaw, Plastic Man, Iceman, Dr. Claw, and so many others. And finally, 60 years ago, 1963, of all of those five first appearance comics, 
the ones that were drawn by Jack Kirby were X-Men, number three, and Sergeant Fury, number five. Amazing Spider-Man, of course, drawn by Steve Ditko. The issue with the Mandarin from Tales of Suspense, that was by Don Heck. And Tales to Astonish, that featured Black Knight, that was drawn by Dick Ayers. All right, let me know how you did. That is your Timeline Trivia Tuesday, wrapped up for November 2023. We will return next month with December. New Comics Wednesday. New Comics Wednesday recommendations for the week of November 22nd. That Christmas music that you heard is to, well, it was played on the Boom Studios promo video for Complete Claws Deluxe Hardcover by Grant Morrison and Dan Mora, $59.99, collecting the seven issue series and a number of one shots as well as the pen and ink edition. So this is the story about the man who would become Santa Claus with all of that great uh, Dan Mora artwork. And it's probably the series... I mean, I picked it up because of Grant Morrison. And then when I was hearing Dan Mora's name, especially on the Boom Addiction podcast, I realized, oh, oh okay, I have his artwork from uh, all of this Claws stuff, and, uh, you know, that's kind of, I guess, where I really uh, got my first taste of his artwork, and then eventually, of course, he's all over DC now, and he's doing amazing work. So you can pick up that uh, hardcover, uh, now released, from Rebellion 2000 and 2000 AD, Comic Book Punks, How a Generation of Brits Reinvented Pop Culture, edited and put together by Carl Stock. I may have mentioned this on a previews episode, and it's just a bunch of uh, interviews with a generation of writers and artists and editors uh, from, you know, the early 70s through the 80s that would have such a creative impact on comics and and other sorts of um, entertainment. From Image Comics, Indigo Children Trade Paperback Volume 1, $16.99, collects the six-issue miniseries by Kurt Pyers, Rockwell White, Alex Diotto, and D. Kniff. Fifteen years ago, a group of extraordinary gifted children who claimed to be reborn Martians sent to Earth to save the world disappeared without a trace. They were the Indigo Children. Journalist Donovan Price has spent the last 15 years trying to hunt them down and find out what happened. But when he does, it kickstarts a chain of events that will alter the trajectory of mankind. And from Marvel Comics, let's get another one of those nostalgia miniseries, Daredevil Black Armor Number 1, $4.99, an all-new Daredevil story set during that infamous run this uh, The writer is still the same, D.G. Chichester, with art by Netho Diaz, cover art by Mark Bagley. Back then, it was art by Scott McDaniel, probably the first time I 
um, read Scott McDaniel comics. And I, you know, I was there for that fall for grace story when that armor showed up and as wacky as it was with that one glow in the dark cover and there were like doppelganger daredevils and Electra was in it and Silver Sable was in it, I think. And, you know, just people just kept showing up, showing up, showing up. Um, I was there. I read it. I quite enjoyed it. And much like the Aquaman camouflage costume, I liked the black armor. Was it 90s? You betcha. But it at least got me into reading Daredevil for that short um, story arc. All right, there you go. Those are your recommendations for the week of November 22nd. I've got plenty to be thankful for. I haven't got great big yacht to sail from shore to shore. Still, I've got plenty to be thankful for. I've got... A thought for Thanksgiving Thursday. Say thank you for grace. Thank you for mercy. Thank you for understanding. Thank you for wisdom. Thank you for parents. Thank you for love. Thank you for kindness. Thank you for humility. Thank you for peace. Thank you for prosperity. Say thank you in advance for what's already yours. That's how I live my life. That's why I, why I am, one of the reasons why I am today. Say thank you in advance for what is already yours. True desire in the heart for anything good is God's proof to you sent beforehand to indicate that it's yours already. I'll say it again. True desire in the heart, that itch that you have, whatever it is you want to do, that thing that you want to do to help others and to, to grow and to make money, that desire, that itch, that's God's proof to you sent beforehand already to indicate that it's yours. And anything you want good, you can have. So claim it. Work hard to get it. When you get it, reach back. Pull someone else up. Each one, teach one. Don't just aspire to make a living. Aspire to make a difference. Thank you. Two lonely strangers Lost in the mirror of watching their life go by from the outside in the city light. How's that for a bumper for this final segment here on Friday, November 24th? That song is from the Outsiders movie. Uh, from the original soundtrack called The Outside In. And I thought those particular lyrics would be a good intro for this final Friday segment for a review of The Outsiders from DC Comics. So this is The Outsiders number one by Jackson Lansing and Colin Kelly, known as The Hive Mind, artist Robert Carey, colorist Valentina Taddeo, letterer Tom Napolitano, 
and this is part of, obviously, the Dawn of DC brand. This was released November, the week of November 15th, so um, I talked about it last time around on Last Digest, and I thought, I kind of want to review this issue by issue if it's going to live up to the premise of... Um, what they're tra- what they're defining this series as, right? So they're they're saying, you know, this series will unearth the secrets of the DC universe. It has a very obvious planetary feel to it, right down to the cover and things that happen inside the issue. I'm really starting to enjoy Lansing and Kelly's comics and that pair as a writing team. Uh, specifically Star Trek from IDW, as well as Kang the Conqueror, that miniseries that was at Marvel a year, a few years back. And I was like, okay, I'm really kind of fascinated by this series. I got the physical copies. I ordered the physical copies. So I'm going to do a review, uh, a light review here at the end, uh, for, of this digest. Um, and... So Planetary itself, that series, was a series that I read back in 2021. Now, I had collected Planetary when it was coming out, but eventually all of the delays made me stop ordering it, and I don't remember how far I got, maybe the first 10, maybe the first 12, and I never went back. I never finished the series. So back in 2021, I was like, okay, let me finally read everything. I took some notes I didn't talk about it much on the podcast. They were It was really a read that I was doing for myself because it's such a deep series in what it's trying to show. Uh, you know, Warren Ellis, John Cassidy, um, un, unearthing different parts of comic history and archaeology and literature and mashing it all together within the Wildstorm universe. There was an issue on Godzilla. There's an issue on, you know, Dracula. There's an issue on Doc Savage, or or I should say versions of all of those things uh, within the Wildstorm universe, you know. Um, there's even a, an issue that is more or less uh, Vertigo and all of those characters, you know. And as, as they journeyed through all of those story types, archetypes, genres, whatever, um, there was also a larger story of Planetary, the three main characters of Planetary, up against the Wildstorm universe of the Fantastic Four. And um, I quite enjoyed it, loved reading it. I don't necessarily think Planetary ended well. I was a little disappointed with the ending. Once I read it, uh, both in terms of the art and in the story, I, I thought it kind of whimpered out a little bit. And took less of a chance at the end. I, I understand, you know, why it was written the way it was and why they did what they did, blah, 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 blah. But I just wanted something with a little more punch. So, you know, I sat on those notes and then here we go. Here's the Outsiders uh, bringing Planetary to the DC Universe. And I was like, okay, I got to read this. I'm curious about it. The story itself is simple enough. This all takes place after the Gotham War And Luke Fox, who was once known as Batwing, recruits Batwoman, Kate Kane, in an effort to give her purpose outside of all of these superhero battles. She's getting fed up with the the idea that she always has to be a part of it and, and all those battles never really go anywhere. 
So through their conversation, you get the scope of the outsiders, that they are an organization run by Luke Fox and also run by his father, Lucius, and then it's also going to be run by Kate Kane, and a new character known as the Drummer, a middle-aged woman with um, powers and a drumstick very similarly <laughs> to uh, the Drummer from the original Planetary series. Uh, we don't know yet if there's any connection. And through all of this, Kate Kane is like, okay, I'm in... Um, and they have their first adventure, which is to go to the Antarctic, and they discover that there is something underneath the ice that is 50 miles long and ready to explode. So this leads to the carrier shift ship that the Authority used to use as they traveled the bleed. While they investigate the ship, they come across all the other various members of the outs like sort of like the staff of the outsiders who tried to investigate the ship and they got lost so they wind up rescuing them and eventually they managed to communicate with the ship and uh they realize that there's a lot more out there going on in the larger dc universe that needs to be dug up that needs to be taken care of um outside of the usual superhero stories so that's kind of like a loose um, synopsis of the story. What did I think of the story? Okay, so I just said that I really enjoy the writing of this pair. And I have to say, I was slightly disappointed with the weight of their dialogue in this issue. When I started reading Kang the Conqueror and Star Trek, I was quite impressed by the dialogue. Um the way the, the characters talk to each other, the ideas they were bringing up, um, the, the ideas that were, I thought, fascinating as a reader, connections they were made, making in the Star Trek universe, and then over in Kang, just some of the, the themes that they were dealing with in Kang. Um, I don't know if it's because this is a setup issue, and they had to set it up so quickly in one issue and 20-some pages that the, it felt a little light in that regard. Uh, you get the information. Like, you get exactly what what's the point of the story. You get some mysteries. You get some character introductions. Um, if you don't necessarily know who Luke Fox is or who Kate Kane is, you get some ideas and some uh, sequences that are like, okay, obviously she's a badass fighter. They're related to the Bat family. Okay, I get all that. Uh, the drummer is an obvious mystery. That's okay. And you get hints of what the ship are, but you have to kind of read between the lines. For instance, the ship says something like, you know, uh, I traveled the multiverse. There was a wedding in my heart which is a reference to Authority issue number 29, the final issue of the first volume of Authority, where Midnighter and Apollo did get married in that issue. Um, you get other little teases as they walk through the carrier, such as uh, this series of display cases featuring the skeletons of what is called Century Babies. And you see the name... Jenny Sparks, you see the name Axel Brass. Jenny Sparks led the authority. Axel Brass was that Doc Savage archetype that I mentioned uh, in the Planetary C series. Then there's another um, 
sequence where there are these other displays of like costumes. And when I looked online, they said the costumes belong to characters like um, Caitlin Fairchild from uh, uh, Gen 13 or Maul from Wildcats, which I was like, really? I don't know if I see that. Um, and also a character known as The High, John Cumberland, also from, I believe, from Stormwatch. Um, the one that, the only one that really feels like it looks exactly like the original costuming is Swift from the original Authority. They said uh, the, one of the other ones is the Engineer, but I don't, you know, it just looks a little different. So I don't know. I don't know who they, they are, what those costumes belong to, but I guess, again, that's part of the mystery that we'll find out later, maybe. I kind of get the sense that one of the goals of this series could be to really meld the Wildstorm universe into the DC universe. If you listened to one of the early DC All-Stars episodes that we did of the second volume, we did an episode on Wildstorm's 30th anniversary, and we talked about how whenever they tried to mix Wildstorm and DC, it doesn't always mix fully. You know, it still feels separated for some reason. A lot of the characters in the Wildstorm universe are already... Um, you know, there are already archetypes in the DC universe. So I thought maybe this is a way to kind of bring the Wildstorm universe into the DC universe a little stronger, a little more definitively. I don't know. We'll see. So the writing is fine. I wanted a little bit more. I do like the artwork. The artwork um, that is by Robert Carey doing pencils and, inker and inks. Um, it's obviously not detailed and um it's not in the flavor of john cassidy nor should it be right they're trying to do their own thing um but it works it works for the series we'll see how it how it works when they get into a, a more fantastical um story stories and and more fantastical characters uh one of the things that i thought was funny that when luke fox is saying he's trying to pitch all of this to kate kane She's like, okay, I'm in as long as this isn't a Batman thing. And he says, nope, this is going to be our own thing. I just thought that was funny because on the cover, they very obviously have a Batman symbol for you to go, oh, this is part of the Batman line of books. Of course, the very name, The Outsiders, is all about, you know, Batman because that's how it started, Batman and The Outsiders, way back in 1983. So... And then you have two characters that are straight from the Batman family book. So, you know, I understand the point of what was said, but obviously the comic itself is um, very much Batman related. Uh, speaking of the cover, you see the three characters and right away it evokes planetary. You got Luke Fox looking like Elijah Snow or Ambrose from planetary. You got... Kate Kane looking like Jaquita Wagner. You got the drummer in the drummer role. In fact, Luke coming to Kate is very similar to the way that Jaquita came to Elijah to recruit him for the planetary. And then, of course, there's a mystery of who is the fourth man, and you learn the backstory of a lot of these characters as you're reading planetary. So a lot of similarities a lot of obvious references to um, the Wildstorm universe. 
And then we are hit at the end with um, a revelation at the end of the issue. I won't mention what it is. But it marks the series not as a not as DC's version of the planetary, but very much as, oh, this could be looked at as a continuation of planetary. And I'm not sure we expected that, or I'm not sure that I um, thought that that's what was going to happen. I thought they were just going to take the flavor of planetary, the mission statement, the themes, the ideas, and do that within the DC universe. And then when you get the carrier and you get the reveal at the end, you're like, oh, okay, so maybe this is a little bit more. So, um, yeah, not enough to dig in super, super deep in this first issue other than the Wildstorm stuff that you saw on the carrier ship, but still interesting enough. And um, certainly Luke Fox and Batwoman headlining a, a comic together is... I think that's noteworthy, you know, a black character, a lesbian character. Um, it, it is a team book, but you have to imagine those two characters are going to drive a lot of the stories. And I I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it for what it was. I'm hoping some of the other issues um, beef up some of the writing from what I expect from Lansing and Kelly. Um, and we'll see. We'll see if I continue to do this issue by issue, or if I just group some issues up the next time I want to talk about The Outsiders. Email me your thoughts, peter at thedailyrios.com. Go visit The Daily Rios website or Instagram. Follow me on Twitter, Peter J. Rios. Review me on your favorite podcast catcher. Uh, Send me your book club recommendations. Send me your promos. Send me your audio talkback clips. This has been The Daily Rios, episode 647 for Saturday, November 25th, 2023. Talk to you soon. Those three super kids won't exactly have fun when they play with the toys on this remote-controlled artificial planet. (laughs) And the game is about to begin.